Hi, Jonathan here. I just want to take a minute to thank you for being a, a radio listener. Um, we cannot do what we do without your partnership. And briefly, I just want to invite you as the year uh, closes out to just consider us as a place where you might be able to financially partner. You know, we need partners like you in order to expand our reach into even more countries and help even more individuals to be able to find the hope and the help that they need to break free from any kind of sexual struggle or stronghold. So please consider partnering with us as the year closes out. You can simply go to puresexradio.com and click on the donate link and make your gift there. We'd especially appreciate it if you would consider becoming a monthly partner. That helps us to just expand our reach even more and also gives you an opportunity through the faithful giving to be able to also pray for us as you give on a monthly basis. Again, that's puresexradio.com and click on the donate link. Thank you so much and God bless you. You're listening to Pure Sex Radio, training men, educating women. Brought to you by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us on the web at puresexradio.com. Good day, radio listeners. Welcome to this edition of the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. We're glad to have you with us. My name is Jonathan, and uh, we actually have back with us again on the phone from Jacksonville, Florida, we have uh, Jerry Sinclair with us. So, Jerry, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Jonathan. It's good to be back. Yeah, so uh, we were excited uh, last time we got to hear uh, Jerry's story and just how, um, just from the, the just the depths of brokenness and, and sexual addiction and God bringing him into recovery environments and just seeing the transformation there. And for the, you know, past 23 years, been on this journey of recovery and growth and and now has a uh, thriving group ministry there in Jacksonville, Florida, that helps uh, men and couples and, you know, uh, folks that are dealing with the sexual brokenness issue and sexual addiction. And Jerry, what I would love to do in this um, in this episode is really start to kind of unpack the process, because I do think there are... Um, I do think there are some best practices in terms of principles of how do we actually go through the process of going from being completely entangled in a sexual stronghold or addiction to living in the freedom that we have in Christ. And so I would love for you as somebody who's been on this journey personally for a lot of years, but also been able to walk a whole lot of people through this process to be able to just take all of that experience and, and knowledge that you've gained over the years and be able to just um, kind of take us through that that process. So the first thing I would love to do, even before we get to some of the the bullet points that we've had here, you mentioned the in the last uh, episode what you would say to somebody who's kind of on the fence and and just trying to man, what is that first step in order to begin this journey of recovery? And you had mentioned that it's essential that they take responsibility for that first step. So in other words, there can be a whole lot of people that are trying to shove that person into recovery. Could be a spouse, could be a parent, um, could be a pastor. But what is it about the essential necessity that that individual be the one to initiate or eventually open up to um, the recovery process itself? Well, Jonathan, I think there's got to be a want to uh, from the uh, addict. The person who's uh, in trouble uh, has to want to get help. 
and uh, they're usually at the last rope. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous call it crash, the bottom line, the, the bottom crash, that we're at rock bottom. And for many drunks, that means they've lost everything, their job, career, uh, friends, family, home, uh, even their cars have been repossessed. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of addicts out there, not just alcoholics, but drug addicts and, and behavioral addicts and food addicts and all kinds of addicts. But the, when you hit rock bottom where you say, I can't do this, I need help, and then you pick up the phone, which probably weighs about 1,000 pounds, but mm-hmm. you pick that phone up and you dial the number that you're given, say, or you call this number. Now, I usually, when I talk about my ministry, the ministry of support groups, which is what we do, I always tell people that are unaware of what we do that I said there's three kinds of people that call me. And they're all three get-caught guys. Uh, they got caught by somebody, reported by somebody, or revealed by somebody. Mm-hmm. And these are the three get-caught circumstances that were, I would say, over 90% of our men come because of this. The first one is they got caught by a family member. Either their child caught them, a daughter or a young child, or their mother or, or their wife, which is number one one, right, his, number, his wife. So he got caught by a family member, spouse, whoever. The second get caught is they got caught by the authorities. They got arrested. Um, in the old days, you used to be getting arrested for solicitation of a, a, a prostitute. Uh, nowadays, it's uh, really severe. You don't get a misdemeanor for going into child pornography or even stalking uh, underage uh, children on the Internet for the purpose of having sex with them. So they get caught by the authorities. The third get caught is they get caught by their boss. And this is a really scary one because uh, aside from going to jail or getting caught by your wife, is the boss fires you. If you get drunk on the job, they'll send you to the EAP person and get you uh, clinical counseling for, dro- for alcoholism. Uh, if you're a drug addict, they'll send you to a rehab place. Probably pay for it. But they, if you're caught looking at pornography on the Internet at work, they don't take prisoners. They just call in the HR. They call in a lawyer. They call you in. They type up a letter of termination. So you, uh, here's the security guard to go to your cubicle to collect your stuff, and we're going to escort you out the door. Your badge is no good. And I've had a number of guys come to me. Now, when when any of those three things happen, these guys are broken. Now, one thing they don't see still, they don't see the consequences down the road. And every time a consequence comes up, they get discouraged. And, you know, want to quit or want to, you know, do something else Mm -hmm. or try to work the program by themselves. So I just encourage you guys, stick with it, stick with it, stick with it. Uh, Don't give up and um, don't quit. Yeah. Just keep coming back. It works if you work it. Yeah. So once we've got somebody that's saying, hey, listen, I'm I'm wanting to do this because I'm wanting to do this. In other words, it's not forced anymore. Let's start talking about kind of the process there. And, and, and we're going to probably be, um, you know, while we want to, you know, focus on the individual, the vast majority of the people that we deal with our ministry. And I know that, that you deal with your, in your ministry are usually married folks. So there may be a leaning in some of our conversation more towards the married folks, but when it comes to the sort of the individual principles, they, they apply to an individual. I mean, you know, so it's not like, like even this first one, let's talk about rebuilding trust. Certainly that has a particular 
flavor that we may be talking about in the issue of marriage. But would you not also say that the single guy who has been living in sexual sin and sexual addiction, hey, he's also broken a lot of trust in his life in the relationships that he's involved with, too. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that issue of rebuilding trust. Well, I think, first of all, it's uh, rebuilding trust is not the responsibility of the person you offended. They don't have to trust you for you to get in recovery. It's not your responsibility to make them trust you. They've got to want to do it. They'd be willing to do it. But it's going to be on their terms. And for a friend or a buddy, it might be just, you know, I forgive you, let's move on. Uh, to a pastor he or a church leader or a ministry leader, uh, they may want to delay that a little bit. For a spouse, children, uh, parents, uh, it take a little longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a year. I tell guys, uh, crawl on your belly with your wife, because you know, we're talking about single guys too, but or you, some of them may have girlfriends that may find out about it. I say, crawl on your belly for about a year. And if you're still giving, if your spouse is still giving you a hard time, or your friends or family is still giving you a hard time, you still have trouble with them, then come back to me and let's, let's unpack that and find out why. But here's the thing, it's right out of Scripture, right out of James. Your actions speak louder than your words. Mm. Don't be hearers only, be doers of the word. Right. So my wife watched me closely. I mean, she'd never watched me like this before because she trusted me for 24 years of our marriage. But she just watched me, and she saw me change on a dime. We talk about repentance in the uh, Christian vernacular in the church. And repentance is... You're going the wrong way, and all of a sudden realize you're going the wrong way, and you do a 180-degree hairpin turn and go back the other way, if you can visualize that. Well, sex addicts don't do that. Their idea of repentance is, I'm going to do a 90-degree turn. I'm going to turn away from the sin, but I'm not going to turn towards God. And they sit there in that stall like that, in that stalled uh, countenance, and people pick up on it. Well, he, uh, he says he's committed. He says he's going to meetings. My wife did that to me for years. Well, Jerry, you say you're doing better, mm. but how do I know you're doing better? And, of course, actions. If I'm less angry, if I'm less testy, if I'm more communicative, uh, and uh, th- th- those kinds of things, um, uh, the word intimacy is a word that's confused a lot in, in our culture today. If you lined up uh, 100 couples, husbands and wives, and gave them each sheet of paper, and the director or the moderator of the meeting said, you got five minutes to write down your definition of intimacy. The guys will be done in about five seconds. Right. They won't need any more time. And the wives will be over there. Five minutes won't be enough time. Oh, i got to have more time. Because their idea of intimacy isn't sex. It's about warmth, closeness, communication, meaningful communication. Uh, Your yes is yes and your no is no. Uh, if you say you're going to pick up the dry cleaning on the way home, you pick it up. If you're going to be home for 5 o'clock supper, you need to be walking in the door at 5 o'clock. And uh, if you're not, you call me. Mm-hmm. And you better have a good reason why you can't make it. And, and Jonathan, I blew it today. I had uh, uh, I have a support group meeting, early bird meeting on Thursday mornings, and one of the guys wanted to visit with me afterwards at Chick-fil-A. And uh, and we got into it, and all of a sudden, I forgot I had not called my wife. He went to the bathroom. I called my wife. She was worried sick mm. because it was way past the time for me to be home 
Yeah. She understood. She forgave me because I got 23 years of credibility buildup. And, of course, I apologized profusely because I knew I was wrong. And that's the other side of uh, you know, actions being loud of the words. When you do blow it, admit it before you're caught. Right. <laughs> and let me ask you. And let, accept responsibility. Let me ask you one thing, too, because this is often um, misunderstood. Talk to us a little bit about the issue of forgiveness as it relates to rebuilding trust, but also the distinctions between forgiveness and trust. Okay. Uh, we always encourage the guys to do a full disclosure of all their secret sins or sexual sins and everything to a wife who is willing to hear it. Mm. There are some wives that don't want to hear it all, or they don't hear anything, and you have to respect that. But typically, most wives want to know what's going on, and they want to know it all at one time. Some want more detail than they should get, and we try to encourage them to not do that. We, I encourage the guy to do this in a safe place for both of you. Not the bedroom, not at 2 o'clock in the morning, in the couch, in the living room. Go to a safe place, a pastor's office, study, a counselor's office, or a park, or a place where you don't usually go that's quiet and intimate. Mm -hmm. And then you lay out your timeline, and you go through everything you've done. And if you've been honest and trustworthy, and, and, and your wife has accepted what you've said, that's... You're building trust. But the thing you don't do is you don't ask for forgiveness. And you don't bring it up that she has forgiven you. Because here's one other thing mistake guys make. They think that once a wife says they've forgiven you, they, you think they've forgotten everything you did wrong. Forgiveness yeah. does not mean forgetting. Right. Forgiveness means I want to move on with you, hand in hand, side by side. I'm going to remember the past, but I'm not going to say hold it over your head. Some wives do. Mm -hmm. And that's, once again, why I say crawl on your belly for about a year before you really panic about that. Just get used to it. That's just calling, the, as I say, the crawling on your belly syndrome. You just, you've actually reversed roles. Your wife is a spiritual leader of your home for the first 60, 90, 180 days. And you've just had, you know, you've had to you know, circumvent that and uh, work around that to allow her to uh, call the shots, so to speak. And if she needs to cover something with you that you disclosed a long time ago, that's great. Now, another thing about us addicts, we don't remember everything we did. Mm-hmm. Our wives remember everything we did. I can't remember what I had for lunch earlier this week, but our wives would. And, of course, they, if they cooked it, they expect us to remember it. Right. <laughs> but well, but one of they the ways, do remember, but yeah. we don't. And, and one of the ways that my wife has described the whole issue of forgiveness is in that, in that vein of realizing that you don't forget it. It's a willful decision to choose not to hold that over mm -hmm. my head. And so the issue is, and she brings it into play, and it's really a, I mean, if you think about it, even from a biblical perspective, um, God is unable to forget. And what I mean by that is he's, he's omniscient. He knows everything. Yeah. So when he I'll said, make it even clearer than that. The scripture actually says he chooses not to forget. Exactly. So when he says... That's even stronger because he chooses... Uh, to forget. He chooses to throw it east to the west, throw it into the deepest sea, right. but he chooses to do that. Wives cannot choose to forget. They are st it's stuck in our memory, but it's part of our life. And there's some times when the, they really do bury it, and that's good, but don't expect it. And the other side of forgiveness, I think, is very important for, a, for an addict, is, will you forgive me? I could just hear the addict say, will you forgive me? And every person they talk, will you forgive? I don't ask for forgiveness from anybody. 
I confess what I did wrong. And then I let them decide if and when they want to forgive me. It's not my decision to make for them. It's not not my position to ask for forgiveness. I've not earned that right. Mm-hmm. Now, most of the time, it's pretty comes out pretty quick without me ever prompt them. But if they don't, or they don't say it, maybe they do it, but they don't verbalize it, it's not for me to decide. It's up to them to decide that. I never realized that until about oh, 10 years into my recovery. It was in the workbook that I was using. Uh, that manipulation is one of our big uh, key faults. Right. And whenever we're asking somebody to do something that uh, maybe is against their will, they feel manipulated. And I can't tell you how many times, Jonathan, I've had guys in my group tell me, Jerry, you're trying to manipulate me. Mm-hmm. And I confess it, and I say, I love you. <laughs> right. So what do we so, do with people we love? We manipulate them to love us even more. So Yeah, so what uh, I'm hearing you say about yeah, what I'm hearing you say about this issue of rebuilding trust then is, and, and really even even the issue of forgiveness and how they play together, is for the person who uh, who has the addiction or has a stronghold and they're seeking to recover, what they're needing to do is start pursuing the the path of purity and integrity and righteousness. And in so doing, obviously that requires confession because we got to bring into the light what's been in the dark. But what I'm hearing you saying yeah. in terms of this issue of rebuilding trust is, Sort of the end of the road for us is the issue of simply making the confession. Anything beyond that is manipulation, and we're trying to control outcomes. And so really, while trust is somewhat of a two-way street, for the person who's trying to go through recovery from addiction, in some ways, the power is in the hands of the other person. It's kind of like, well, yep. we want to be walking in integrity, but we don't have any control over what that other person is going to, how they're going to respond. So we have to yep. really allow and surrender to that process and let that other person go through whatever they need to go through to either forgive or not forgive or to trust or not trust. We don't have any control over that. Yep, we don't. And that's another hard thing for guys to figure out uh, in their own thinking. That's one of the reasons why we really encourage support groups is because Support groups will support and love anybody, no matter where they're at in recovery, no matter how much they struggle. But through their own confession of saying, well, I tried to manipulate something this week, and it really got me in trouble. And when you hear that, you hear another guy say something similar, and you hear another guy say something like that, and four or five guys all of a sudden confess about something that another guy's struggling with, it's going to be his idea. And I want it to be his idea, not my idea, that he needs to do something. Well, I want to everybody's space sure, of recovery is different. Yeah, I want to make sure, Jerry, that we get through a lot of these points because uh, there's, yeah. some, there's some good ones here. You had mentioned briefly in the last episode that we had with you um, the idea of there's no secret or magic bullet. Can you expound on that just a little bit so that we can understand what you mean yeah. by that? I think a majority of the guys that I meet in recovery uh, think it's just going to be a brief three-month process or whatever you want to call it of, of going to meetings and getting a counselor, and then they're going to be better. And then they'll just go off from there. And I really encourage them not to do that. Uh, that Go ahead and make it a life sentence, if that's what you want to call it. It's not a life sentence. It's a life of uh, joy, and it's a journey that has ups and downs. But, you know, uh, it, it's I've had to change my lifestyle. I mean, when I went from being a sex addict into being somebody in recovery, a lot of things changed for my life. And what expediated that was I was out of work. I didn't have a job. So I, had sp- I could spend a lot of time on recovery during my uh, waking hours when I wasn't looking for a job or interviewing. 
and so that helped. But a lot of guys don't have that luxury. And then I had no children at home. My kids were grown. We were empty nesters. So I had, did not have the responsibility of raising kids. Well, today's addict is gainfully employed with two or three kids, mm-hmm. and uh, a wife may be pregnant with another one, and she has demands on him uh, outside of his addiction that he needs to pay attention to. So I just encourage guys, don't look to get over this thing. We don't get over it. And guys ask us, how do you go to meetings for over 20 years? And Jonathan, I'll tell you, I've gone through the workbook probably five or six times before we get a new one, before we cycle it out and get a new one. So imagine me sitting there listening and hearing the same thing over and over again, Mm -hmm. but it reinforces my own recovery. But I tell guys there's two things, there's two things in my life that will keep going to meetings. And one of them is that I'll never be beyond temptation. Right. Scripture says temptation is always going to be here. So when I didn't blame Satan before, I certainly blame him now for some of the temptations that may be presented to me uh, because they skipped over, leaped over, jumped over my boundary right in my lap, so to speak, figuratively speaking. So I will always have temptation before me. And uh, the other one is um, pride. Mm. And I've added this one over the last few years. Uh, Pride can come into my life from any direction. It doesn't have to be sexual. Many times it's not. And uh, I can get very narcissistic, egotistical, without any thought whatsoever. And I can spot guys like that, too. I was at a missions conference for three three days, uh, and these guys are all from Texas. You can't tell anybody from Texas anything. (laughs) Hey, now, watch it. Watch it. Yeah, right, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. You're in Texas. But... um, but I, but I have a pride issue, and I have, I have to have be in check. I have to go to a meeting and basically be vulnerable and be open so pride will not get in. Pride doesn't want to go into a person who's vulnerable. Right. So, uh, yeah, there's that, very so much that's, a, that's, yeah, it's very much a process. And we, you know, I like yeah. to tell people all the time that while, you know, I've been on my own journey for over 18 years, that while I can, um, very, very joyfully say that I am uh, free from addiction. I'm absolutely not free from temptation, nor free from the the continuing sanctifying process that Jesus has me mm-hmm. on. Because listen, one thing that I've learned, I'm sure you've learned along the way too, having had you know decades of time on this journey, is that the minute you you think you've kind of gotten a bead on whatever layer it is that Jesus is instructing you on or or teaching you on he pulls he pulls back another layer and you realize oh man mm-hmm. there's a whole new right. there's a whole new nuance yep. of this journey that I didn't even realize before it's almost like we go from yeah. the the big big boulders of behavior that were the entry point for our journey to then we get down into the more refined motives of the heart and intentions of the heart and these things that are in many ways much, much harder to purify because in, harder in, to discover, harder in, to purify yeah, in, and re- harder to identify. Yeah. In and they still, and they, and, in relationship, they can build, go ahead. Yeah, they can build back into big boulders. They stay there long enough. Yeah. Cause in relationship to the behavioral boulders, um, in many ways, the behavioral boulders, whoa, those are way easier to get out of the way because you can see them so clearly. 
And yes. it's it's all those motives and intentions of the heart that are so much more difficult to see. Let's talk about this question of why there are some or maybe even many churches that are resistant to this idea of there even being sexual sin in the pew. Well, I, 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 uh, I've, had, I've had some evolution in this thinking. It's still there, but I, here, here's what I ran into 20 years ago when I first started these support groups. I just used to go and knock on doors of churches. I'd take my day off from uh, what I was doing at the time, selling cars, and on my day off, I'd just go and knock on doors of churches. And I'd usually just see the secretary, and I'd hand him a paper and whatever. And, and, and I'd, occasionally I'd get to visit with pastors. I'd call on a church and uh, on a weekday and visit with a pastor and make an appointment, whatever. And uh, he will just look down his nose at me and say, "Well, we don't have that kind of a problem in our church." Hmm. Well, I couldn't say anything, Jonathan, uh, that I was thinking. But I, here's what I was—I knew and was thinking. There's two guys from his church in my group. That's why I was calling on him because there's probably two more. <laughs> but I couldn't say that because of confidentiality. But over right. the time, I haven't had any pastors do that to me in a long time. Uh, I often also thought that when a pastor resisted my, my ministry to the point where they just didn't want to be even visit their church, and I've felt that since that scene that possibly that pastor's the one that's got the problem. And there are enough surveys out there that tells us that roughly a third of clergy uh, are struggling with sexual sin. Yeah. And uh, so... Uh, it, be it pornography or be it affairs or anything in between, it doesn't really matter what, to God what the sin is. And as far as his position goes, he's above all that, and he shouldn't be doing it. And so he doesn't want me to come around and remind him about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the other thing is, um, I, I think there's another thing, there's a lot of sexual woundedness out there. Right. Uh, of, 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 of lay people, pastors, staff, where they've had some type of, of invasion or abandonment, sex-related, and it stirs up old wounds. I got invited to preach at my own church uh, when my pastor went on vacation. And as I was opening up the comments and making some comments and saying some things, and very very non-graphic, by the way, very, very glossed-over comments, uh, and, and, of course, going to Scripture at the same time, I did all see all the people out there, and I could see their faces. And Jonathan, I'll tell you, there was so much pain out there mm-hmm. That it was just, I mean, it was just obvious. And I thought, and I was going, and I was kind of interacting with the audience, as many speakers will do. And I was connecting with them. And all of a sudden, I could visualize all the pain that these men and these women went through 50, 60 years ago when they were young, mm. or maybe uh, as a virgin, they went on the honeymoon, and the honeymoon was painful and was non existent and was a tragedy. Um, Women have felt abused and abandoned for many years. Some have had abortions. So I'm going down a litany of things, and I think all that pain in the church, uh, they don't want to regurgitate it. They don't want to bring it back up or stir it back up with any type of public recognition of the problem. And um, so a lot of pastors, what they'll do is they may put a uh, a stack of covenant eye brochures out there on the table, mention something in the pulpit, maybe preach on pornography once a year, and that's it, and we're done. Right. Uh, instead of digging deep and, and, and going deeper into why there's sexual sin. Um, I think sexual sin hides in the church real well, especially when the, the usually the topic in most uh, evangelical churches was against dancing and against drinking mm-hmm. and against a lot of other behaviors, but not against... And, of course, sex was the worst of all, so they really 
report on that. But sex is the one thing you can get away with and nobody know, uh, whereas there, you have to ingest alcohol, you have to ingest uh, drugs, pills, whatever. Right. So it, it, it's kind of a hidden thing. And, of course, now we have another drug issue. We have another drug issue in the United States, and that's opioids. And so uh, that's another way of medicating pain, and there's a lot of Christians who are doing that. So there's a lot of shame in all this. And shame yeah. turns people off to it. Well, Jerry, so there's a lot of reasons. Yeah, and, and we've only got a couple minutes left, and so I'd love to just focus on this one last question of um, this idea of when you're tempted, pause and ask yourself one question. What's the one question? <laughs> I think one of the things that we have to do when we're tempted, whenever we're having the process or the cycle of addiction where we're going through all the stages, need to stop, pause, and just ask yourself, what is my soul trying to tell me? Mm. What, am, what is my soul communicating to me? Don't listen to the addictive side of your brain, the part of your brain which says you go to comfort and you'll be over this in a few minutes, the pain will go away. But what is my soul telling me? And there's several different things. So it says I'm lonely, I'm mad, I'm sad, I'm glad. Um, I'm, you know, it could be any one of different things, of needs that need to be met, be it healthy touch, be it meaningful conversation. But you've got to interrogate yourself. Now, here's the example I always use. It's a military example. If you really look back at the wars we fought over, over generations, one of the things American soldiers like to do, really, is capture the enemy rather than kill the enemy or wound the enemy, if anything. But they don't really want to kill all the enemy. Annihilating the enemy doesn't do you any good if there's more soldiers out there to annihilate. What you want to do is you want to take cherry pick or pick some of the prisoners, bring them in and interview them and interrogate them interrogate the prisoner and as jesus as, as paul said i'm not jesus paul said uh take your mind captive take mm -hmm. your soul captive and interrogate it and really deeply ask god through prayer ask what is my soul really searching for mm -hmm. i will say the more powerful the addictive drug whether it be uh, true drugs alcohol pornography whatever it is the true the, the deeper we are into that to behavior, the harder it is for our soul to communicate with us uh, non-sexually in, in a kind of a mm -hmm. binary way. That is, back and forth. The Holy Spirit can't get in, and, uh, and it's very hard for God. God's there, but God can't penetrate a heart that's closed and locked up. Yeah. So I really encourage people that are struggling, interrogate your heart, interrogate mm -hmm. your soul, find out what is really being told to you, and I think you'll find that to be a very soothing exercise because if you're busy trying to find out what it's telling you all of a sudden that lust diminishes yeah. to near nothing that's really good it's worked is, for me for many years that's great and this is good stuff jerry why don't you let our listeners know um how they can uh, get in touch with you and learn more about your ministry well they can call our hotline and that is uh an area code 904 in jacksonville and the phone number is 443-0246 that's 904 Four four three zero two four six, or they can go to our website. Very easy, very simple. Obviously, it's www dot, but it's also nine zero four true dot org. Once again, the Jacksonville area code nine zero four true dot org. And don't let the Jacksonville ministry fool you. I I talk to people all over the country about this problem, mm -hmm. so I'm more than happy to listen and talk, and give some resources that may be close to where you live that can help you get through some of this stuff. Yeah. 
Well, Jerry, thanks again for being with us. Uh, man, there's lots of lots of wisdom and good stuff. So thanks again for uh, being with us this time. Thank you, John. And listeners, we're always grateful that you're with us, and we look forward to, back, uh, to having you back here again next time on the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. Take care. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.